Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Well, the message tonight is entitled Persevering in Prayer. Um, I have uh, had this kind of theme just really uh, just ruminating in me for uh, several years now. And many times uh, I get the opportunity to, uh, to speak a message. This is one of my go-tos uh, just because how easy it is for us to lose vision, how easy it is for us to um, look around us and take cues from other good, well-intending, meaning things, other ministries and things that are, uh, that are out there in our culture, even in our Christian culture. But I want us to take a look at who we are as a, as a house of prayer and, um, and then really kind of hopefully do a bit of course correction where we may need it. So the prayer room began in September 2005. So we're just over 14 years in, and it started with a call for a daily prayer meeting that was not supposed to stop until Jesus came back. And within this very introductory call, we kind of had a bit of the DNA already laid out in our foundation. It was supposed to be daily prayer. It was supposed to be uh, unceasing. And it was supposed to have this uh, focus of looking toward the day of the Lord's return. So there's, there's already built into this, this initial call a lot of the kind of marching orders of who we're supposed to be as a house. And so... With that being said, it's, it's probably um, a little bit peculiar for anyone who comes into a, a house of prayer, and, and even ours specifically, and, and kind of uh, get a grid right off the bat, unless you're uh, really familiar with, kind of grew up in, in uh, another house of prayer context or a praying church or something like that. Coming to a place like that is really um, kind of new and... Sometimes you're not exactly sure why things are done the way they are. But one of the things that I, I uh, often compare our ministry to is like a food bank or a homeless outreach or something like that. If, this, if, if we had a food bank as our, as our ministry, as our primary focus, we would be very focused on, on nutrition. We'd be uh, nutritional offerings. We'd be focused on... Uh, ways of probably safe food handling. We'd be focused on ministering to those who are coming in. We'd be focused on uh, ways, strategies to be able to pray for people, to minister, to, uh, to bring people into uh, what we're doing, to minister to them with the food bank that we're running, and then uh, bless them, uh, you know, pray for them, or, or whatever it is. Same thing with any other ministry. But with us having a house of prayer and with us uh, having some very specific uh, marching orders, our ministry is going to look very different. And one of the primary differences with a house of prayer, and, and even more specifically with one like ours, is that our primary ministry, our service, is not to people. And that is, is sometimes uh, irritating, <laughs> sometimes annoying, because oftentimes we go into a ministry uh, context, we go into our Sunday service, we go into whatever ministry, and we're looking to get served. We're looking to, to be uh, you know, helped out in some way or to have some need met. And our primary focus is not to meet anyone's needs, actually. It's, it's to offer to the Lord a, a pleasing aroma, uh, an offering of praise, of thanksgiving, of worship, of partnering with Him in the things that He wants to do in this, in this hour, in this city, in our generation. And so um, that just right off the bat is something that is, if you, if you were to compare ministries, that's something that's new and it's, it's worth taking a look at because uh, one of the things that, that is just obvious with um, you know, disappointments, it's a lot of times unmet expectations. And so if your expectation into going into a house of prayer, and, and, and even, uh, I'll just stick with ours from here on, on out throughout the message. If you're going into a, a place like this, 
and you're expecting to get something, um, you may be disappointed. The, the thing that we're doing is calling people here to give, to, to serve, to offer their praise, to offer their worship, to come and partner with what the Lord's doing with us. And so there's, there's this uh, a little bit of a, a switch that needs to, to happen as, as people are coming in. But we do some ministry to people. We have you know, ministry schools. We have some uh, prophetic ministry. We have a couple other things. But honestly, those things have, have even a primary focus of once you're, you're served, blessed, feel, feel great, participated, we want you in the prayer meeting to come in and serve and pour out before the Lord. We're, we're setting this up as a, as a prayer ministry to be a hub of activity for, for any believer to come and, and make this a part of their regular schedule. It's designed to have uh, a, a look and feel much like what we read in Acts. When, when you read the church was constantly together in prayer, constantly together in, in teaching, in, in the apostles' teaching, breaking bread together, uh, fellowshipping with one another. We're aiming to set up an environment that is conducive for all of that, but also with the primary mandate of daily prayer meetings until the return of Jesus. And so with that being said, I want us tonight to be reminded, or if you're new with us, to, to get an idea of what it is exactly uh, the vision that we're wanting to, uh, to uphold, to, to aim toward, and then the values to be able to, to carry that out, to be faithful and to endure. Really, the question is, how can we continue to pray and not quit? Well, I want to take a little bit of a, a, a step back and a, a zoom out of the overarching kind of major themes that are going on right now in, in culture. There's this major event that is, that is going to happen, uh, I believe, very soon in, in probably the coming few decades, and that is Jesus is coming back to the earth. There's going to be a rise of this global system uh, that the Bible refers to as, as the harlot Babylon. There's going to be a real man who is the Antichrist, who not only carries the spirit of Antichrist, but is the Antichrist, the beast that, that is talked about throughout the Word. But there's going to be a vindication of Jesus' bride. There's going to be a, a, uh, a coming in and an uh, outpouring of, of God's provision, of His protection, of His, of his actual saving uh, work, uh, a fulfillment of the saving work that He started with the cross. He's going to actually save us out of this. He's going to be pouring out the, 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 uh, the judgment that is uh, due for the wicked. There's going to be a catastrophic rise of evil and a glorious maturing of the church that happens in the coming decades, which includes the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see an unprecedented uh, global outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church with all flesh, sons and daughters, prophesying and, and working in the, in the power of the Holy Spirit and, and performing great exploits. We're going to see bright and shining lamps. We're going to see the church victorious, in love, in, in a generation that is fully wicked. We're going to see the light get lighter and the dark get darker. And with that as kind of the backdrop, we look to the day of our blessed hope. It's the day of Jesus' return. Many times in the Bible, there's, there's two, uh, I guess, tools that the Lord uses uh, for us to be encouraged and to have hope. He's always pointing back to say, hey, look what I've done, look what you've come through, and also look forward to what's coming. We can look back to what God's done in the Bible, but we could also look back to what He's done in our own lives, in the lives of our friends, and uh, to see His power, to see that His arm is not too short, to see that He's, he's watching, that He's listening, and it helps us to stay the course, to obey, to set our hope in Him. And so, with the continual barrage of, of the message from the culture and the spirit of the age, it's very easy to become distracted, to become disillusioned. But it's, it's moments like this, moments of sobriety that uh, we can really use as a tool, as a gift, 
to um, take us into, uh, into the, back into the track of that, that we had started on, or if we're not on that track, uh, to get onto it. There's a global orchestration that's happening right now, and it's, it's a beautiful thing. If, if you have eyes to see, you can see many of the indicators that are happening right now in the body of Christ globally of the, the trends and the movements of the body of Christ beginning to uh, take form and mature. And there's this big move of God as He is orchestrating His end-time movement, His, His end-time move that is going to result in a victorious church. The Father has a vast and glorious storyline for the whole body of Christ in this generation. We get to take part in it. We get to partner with what God is doing. We get to play a part. If we see anything in the Word unfolding before us, we, we have the privilege to have either prayed into it or if we're seeing it, we could, yes, Lord, do it. And, you know, we can partner with it at that very moment. And we get to have a, an inheritance, an honor that is going to be a, an eternal reality that, that we'll get to enjoy. One of the things about the inheritance that we'll get to enjoy, though, is there are certain parts of my inheritance that rest in you. And there's this kind of uh, almost unfair, but it's an unfair in a really good way. There's part of my inheritance that I won't get if, if you're not doing the part that you're supposed to play. And there's part of your inheritance that you won't get if I'm not doing the part that I'm supposed to play. But if we're all doing the part that we're supposed to play, then we both get to share in a rich inheritance, in a more bountiful inheritance that is eternal. Often times when I run into believers who are not connected with a, with a local body, with a local congregation, one of the main things that I tell them is, you have probably heard people say, hey, you're missing out, you're not getting fed, you're not, you know getting accountability, you're not getting pastored and those things, which is true. But one of the things that I'm always focusing on is there's a part that you're holding back from whatever congregation you're supposed to be a part of. Whatever ministry that the Lord has ordained for you to be a part of right now, there's something missing in that. They are deficient. That ministry is being held back because you're not a part of it. You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. And that's always an encouragement that I'm wanting to give to somebody who's not in the, in the local body or in the, the ministry that they're, they're called to do. I know that it's, it's easy sometimes to, to get into that transition period and then have that transition period last longer than what it probably should. But we want to be doing what the Lord has called us to do, whatever that is, if it's here or somewhere else. There are things that the Lord has on His agenda in His kingdom objectives that He wants to get done through us as individuals, but also as ministries, but globally as the body of Christ. This is what He wants to do. He's moving us forward. I love this part in Ephesians 5, talking about the part of the body that really does its part here uh, toward the end of Ephesians uh, or in the middle part of Ephesians in verse 11, this is giving the, the layout of the fivefold ministry. Paul says, he, he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into Him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share. And it causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. There's a part that each of us are supposed to be playing. There's a, a role that we are supposed to be stepping into and there's transitions and there's times to be rooted and grounded. But if we're, if we're not playing that part, the body of Christ is suffering. It's not just the person who's not doing it that's suffering, but the body is suffering. So I want to take a moment and, and uh, 
talk about some of the values. That, that was a little bit of the vision of we have to play a part. Warehouse of prayer. We want to do our part. We can't do the food bank thing because that's the food bank job to do the food bank thing. We're the house of prayer. We want to do the house of prayer thing. So the values. As I was stating earlier with the food bank example, there's certain things that a food bank should be appropriately should be focusing on. But for a house of prayer, there's things that, that we value. Of course we value everything that, that the Bible teaches and admonishes us to believe and to obey. But there are a few foundational yet neglected values that I see today. The neglect of these values have an impact individually, but also when they are compounded, when, when several of these are not being focused on. And what this results in is there are cultural issues in the body of Christ, and, and they can't be resolved or addressed by individuals alone. It has to be a corporate response. And that's one of the most difficult parts of the response is I can't do your part and you can't do mine. We have to do our parts together. There has to be a corporate response. And so as the house of prayer, we want to do our part. The areas that I believe that we, as a house of prayer, and, and I think the, the house of prayer uh, movement across the, the earth really uh, wants to, to focus on are these four things. Corporate intercession, that makes sense, that we would have intercession as a, a value. The Sermon on the Mount as a lifestyle. Extravagant generosity and prophetic clarity. I want to take uh, a little bit of time on each one of these and develop them and see how they play out. But one of the things I want to really emphasize is there are problems, and we could spend a whole night with, with charts and bar graphs about how the, there's deficiencies but I want to talk about the vision of where we're going as a church and the overcoming and the victory that we're going to see as the, as the bride of Christ begins to mature and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit draws near. Here in, uh, at the bottom of page 2, corporate intercession. There is a measure of prayerlessness in the church that is going to be turned around in this generation as the body of Christ begins to shift, as the expression of Christianity changes. We're going to see the body of Christ that is fueled by intimacy and urgency as the day of the Lord approaches. We'll begin to see the, the body of Christ beholding her beloved more and more and becoming more and more like Him. We're going to see the church begin to look more and more with the description that fit the early church, that it was obvious that they had been with Jesus. As the church walked around in the community, they could tell, oh, they're Christians. You can tell because the way that they act, the way that they love, the way that they serve, they've been with Jesus. You can tell it. And we're headed that way more and more. We can already see some, some of the budding fruit of that. We're wanting to see more and more. We're we're, as a house, a, an equipping center. We want to operate in our calling to train and commission people to steward night and day prayer and worship as a, as a ministry to the Lord. This is a ministry that's, that's been uh, established even as far back as with Moses. And I love this account in Exodus 36. I'm going to read some of it. In this example, uh, in the first example of a, a meeting place that was designed for God to have a resting place, no longer uh, just uh, out wandering, but to have a place to rest. In Exodus 36, we see a few, a, uh, a few things kind of uh, lay out in a kind of domino effect, and the way that it, it falls is just beautifully. First thing, in Exodus 33, 4, 5, leading up to this, we see that Moses is encountered with the glory of God and he's forever changed. And he knows that no longer is it, is it life as business as usual. He has to have more and he has to develop this, this, uh, this beholding of God more and more. And so there's a, a sanctuary that is to be established. God gives the call to build the house, to build the, the tent uh, the, the beginnings of the house of prayer that would later be developed with David. 
but he gives the call first and foremost. So there's a call given. Then he, he reveals that the, the answer to that call has already been supplied within the, the people in the community. It's revealed as the story kind of uh, goes through that there is within certain individuals certain and specific experience, knowledge, wisdom, experience that they had already been doing in their life leading up to this moment that was preparing them for this very moment for the building of the house of prayer. Then we also see that there is a stirring in the heart. God gives a stirring in the hearts for those who are supposed to be involved. And in this particular context, it was the entire community that was stirred. A stirring in the heart. Then there's a response, and the response is, yes, I'll do it. I'll play my part. For some, it was, I'm going to do this a very involved process of woodwork, metalwork, tapestry. Others it was, I have this this, uh, store of treasure of gold that I have. I'll freely give it. Others it was, I have uh, the hours of service that I can give. Each one was doing their part. So there was a, a response of yes. God gives grace to the yes so that they can continue doing it. And then the end result is the most beautiful words that I've ever heard in, in relationship to the house of prayer. They were supplied for with much more than enough. So much so that Moses even had to say, please stop giving and serving. We can't hold it anymore. Stop. Seriously, put it down. The gold, it's too much. Stop. Put it down. I would love for our finance department to say, hey guys, no more. The buckets are full. The bank account said we can't they won't take it anymore. They're done. Our deposits are maxed out. Sorry. Wait till next month. That would be an amazing thing to happen. Here in Exodus 36, I want to read it. It's five verses. These two guys, I don't know how many times their uh, names have been read aloud, but I, I just like saying their names. So, And Bezalel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan in whom the Lord has put wisdom and understanding to know how to do all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary shall do according to all the Lord's commanded. Then Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom, everyone whose heart was stirred to come and do the work. And they received from Moses all the offering which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of making the sanctuary. So they continued bringing to him freewill offerings every morning. Then all the craftsmen who were doing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work he was doing, and they spoke to Moses saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded us to do. In the following verse is the, the part where Moses says he gave a command to, to make it stop. But I believe this is a model for every praying community, for every house of prayer or praying church, that the Lord has already equipped the people who are in the midst of the community with the wisdom, with the skill, with the experience, with the resources, with the time, with the talent, to be able to do it in their generation. I don't know that we would necessarily have in our house of prayer much need of someone who's, who's amazing with tapestry with exception to a few of the chairs that are ripped. But uh, beyond that, I don't know that we would have much need of that. What we do have need of is worship leaders, of prayer leaders, of sound technicians, of people who are in web design, in uh, you know all the 2019 version of the stuff. And... I believe that the Lord has already stirred in the hearts of those who have the ability and have the resource and the time, the talent, the wisdom, the experience to do it. Many have either said yes, but not done it yet, or, or, or been pausing on the yes for whatever reason. And I believe it's the, the time for it to happen. I believe it's time for the yes, because we see in the example, after the yes, there's grace. And after the grace to continue to do it, there's sufficiency, and even much more than sufficiency. And that's what I would love to see in this praying community and also in others. Well, we have corporate prayer as one of our uh, main focuses. Uh, As I said in the the first uh, part of this section, the, the value is corporate intercession. Corporate prayer is obviously a part of that. But there's a corporate issue that has been uh, that has created a culture of prayerlessness that, res- that requires a corporate response to shift the culture. 
I love, love, love the events that happen, like Day of Prayer and all these, you know, See at the Pole and all these other things. I love them. I think they're great for gathering, but I don't think it's adequate for what we need to shift a culture. I think those one-day events, I think the stadium events are uh, good vision casters, but when it comes to, um, to shifting the culture or an adequate response for the cultural re- uh, prayerlessness that is going on right now in our generation in the church, I believe that there's a, a, a different shift. And part of the, the, the problem to this that's, that's painful and tricky is I can, I can look at that prayerlessness, see it as a problem, and if I go and say, I'm just going to go run back to my prayer closet and so does everybody else, I don't know that that necessarily solves the issue. I believe it's a corporate prayer response that the Lord is, is wanting us to come, uh, come with as a response. How do I know that? Second Chronicles 7.14 if my, people who are, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear them from heaven and I'll forgive their sin and heal their land. In this context, it's Solomon getting a response from the Lord as, as he dedicates the temple that his father had, had tirelessly prepared for. He's getting a response from God as he dedicates this temple And God says, if there's ever this problem, this problem, this problem, including a drought, which I believe we're in a spiritual drought right now, I will do this if my people who are called by my name will gather, will humble themselves, will seek my face, will pray, turn from their wicked ways, then I'll fix the problem. On the positive side, I was mentioning these one-time events, these stadium, you know, uh, day of prayer and... Uh, uh, forget the name of the other one, Night America, Night Out, or something like that. Anyway, these are, are, are positive events. I'm also remembering other events that were massively negative that, that had a response of prayer, uh, but it was only an event. I'm thinking, uh, I remember when 9-11 happened, and so many people were rushing into the churches. The churches were filled, and there was a response of prayer, but it was only an event. I believe if, if there would have been in that event or any of the other tragedies that we've seen in the past 18 years, if there would have been a leader, whether it's the president or anybody else, say, we're not just going to do these one-time events, we're going to turn like the, like the king of Nineveh did. We're going to fast and pray as a nation. We're going to turn from our wicked ways. We're going to seek God's face until he pours out mercy. I believe we'd be in a very different spot right now. I'm pained many times whenever there's a tragedy, and I think it's a genuine response, but, but many times uh, politicians or other people will, will send out a, a tweet or whatever, thoughts and prayers. And I think it's a genuine response, but I think that the, the, the uh, critique of that is also very genuine as, as well, and that is they look at it as a joke because it's like, it's very token, like that's a token response. I don't think you really mean that. And I think that someone as, a, as uh, an outsider looking at a, a believer saying thoughts and prayers sees right through it as just a token and, and not really much substance. I believe that if, if as a nation we would turn, humble ourselves and pray fast during these moments of tragedy that we would see effectual change. And so as I was mentioning earlier, we have a part to play. And so there's, there's a, an opportunity really for us as those who are involved in, and uh, surrounded in, in, a, in a community context of a house of prayer to take our place, to stand, to, to be intercessors, to partner with the Lord in what He's doing. At the top of page four, the next one, the next value is a Sermon on the Mount as a lifestyle. There is, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, a treasure trove of, of what the, the believer is, uh, is challenged to do, not as the extracurricular, but as, as Christianity 101. 
It's basically a call to take our thoughts captive, to make them obedient to Christ, and to ensure that our attitudes are violently pursuing humility, pursuing love. Unfortunately, though, there's a current culture of licentiousness that is so distracted and so permissive and so looking for every way to, uh, to excuse uh, whatever um, sensual sin or whatever thing that, that is uh, the, the thing of the moment, the fad uh, sin of the moment. But we're going to see a shift. We're going to see a change as the, as the church matures and as we shift this, this culture of prayerlessness into a culture of corporate intercession, of corporate worship. We're going to see the church driven into joyful obedience and happy holiness when we experience the love of God in its fullness. I want to take our attention to Ephesians 3, one of the probably most prayed prayers. If I had to guess, probably after Ephesians 1.17. Ephesians 3 is probably number 2. Um, I want to take a look just at a moment. I believe that there's a key that, um, that is, is missing that many times we, we may just gloss over, but it's in the corporate participation in the body of Christ, really related to what I was talking about just a moment ago. I want to read through this, and I've underlined a couple parts that I want to uh, highlight and tie to this key that I believe is, is uh, in, the, in, the, um, in the works for us to begin to experience the love of Christ as it's described in this verse. Ephesians 3.14 For this reason, Paul talking to the church of Ephesus, I bow my knees to the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ from whom the whole family in heaven and earth. So key number one, there is a family that includes the saints in heaven and in earth. So there's one reality of family, of those who've gone before us and those who are, who are currently on the earth, saints. The whole family of heaven and earth is named that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts, plural, through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I believe in this, in this passage that is being prayed, Paul is talking about the the preeminence uh, that he develops actually later uh, in the, the chapter that we read a moment ago in, in chapter 5 about each part playing their role. But there is this whole family, the body of believers, that coming together, here uh, it says, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints. I believe that there's this missing part that many times we see this as an individual prayer, as an individual call to, to somehow experience the fullness of God, the fullness of His love as an individual. And I think that we can experience that to a measure, but I think that the, the fullness that this passage is talking about is available only when the body of Christ comes together. When the body of Christ comes together and serves in love, begins to operate in the way that Jesus described in John 15, I'm going to read it here in a moment, in the way that we would serve one another and not just be looking out for our own selfish gain, not be, only be looking out for the, own, for the thing that's going to help us, that's going to promote us, that's going to be serving us. Jesus said in John 15, I want my joy to remain in you, that your joy may be full. It's possible that Jesus' joy could be in us and that our joy could be full. If this happens, he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love. This is what is, is referred to later in Ephesians 3. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. The fullness of God. This love of Christ which passes knowledge that we would be filled with the fullness of God. The same language right here. My joy would remain in you that your joy would be full. 
I believe that this is the same love that Jesus is, is talking about that Paul refers to. That as the body of Christ, when we begin to serve one another, to lay down our lives. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that we take a bullet for one another. That's probably included. But that we would also inconvenience ourselves. That we would also lay down our lives in whatever way is presented to us. In whatever way is available to us at that moment. To be able to serve to outdo one, one another in works, in love, in service to one another. I believe that once the church begins to, to operate in this, we will begin to experience the love of Christ that passes knowledge, that we will be filled with the fullness. I believe this is a key understanding that as the body of Christ comes together. Also, as a part of this Sermon on the Mount as a Lifestyle, I believe that there are levels of partnership that await us that Jesus wants us to participate in, that wants us to partake in, that wants us to partner with Him in. But I also believe that there are some of these things, and I don't think that it's, it's you know, blatant, scandalous, sin or whatever, but it's, I think that, that many times we've got just a bit too much of the, the smell of the culture on us, a bit too much of... The, the look and the feel of the culture on us to be able to partner in these levels that Jesus wants us to. And so as we begin to, to operate in the Sermon on the Mount as a lifestyle, I believe that we'll begin to see more of these, this partnership, more of this intimacy, more of this experience of God's love. Here in part five, uh, excuse me, part six on page five. I want to take just a moment on extravagant generosity. Again, this, I believe this is tied to the, to the uh, Sermon on the Mount as a lifestyle, but, but it, it uh, bears the uh, importance of, of highlighting it, extravagant generosity. There's a current low view of temporal prosperity, I think, that is, is too much in the church. I, th- I think it's okay that, that there is... Uh, prosperity being taught. I think that God wants us to, to be prosperous. I don't think that there's uh, a, a forced spirit of poverty that is supposed to be on, on the church. I believe that the Lord has for us uh, the ability to be provided for, but I just think that there's also too much focus on the temporal prosperity, on temporal pleasures of life. I think that there will be a, a shift of the things that we're really focusing and gazing on, that we'll no longer just be looking at the things that are temporal, but we'll be looking toward the true prosperity of an inheritance that will be forever, that is eternal, that we'll begin to, to sow into in a more focused way. I know that the Word says that spiritual violence moves the kingdom forward. We also know that dollars do this. And so as we have ability as we have the opportunity to, I believe that there's an opportunity for, uh, for believers and, and even specifically for, for us in the house of prayer and for those who are coming around to, to be able to live in such a way that is, uh, that is wise stewards of finances but is also uh, looking at dollars in a very different way. I think the American model has given us... Uh, very uh, a temporal viewpoint. We have the, the uh, you know, get, a, get the house, get the car, upgrade the car when you got the chance, upgrade the house when you can, all of those things. Again, there, there's opportunity for that. I'm not saying that that's, you know, uh, wholesale, you know, wrong or whatever, but there is, I believe, too much of a focus on the, on the temporal view. I think that the Lord has for us the ability to use those things even in the, in the upgraded house and car to be able to use those things to push His kingdom forward. I think that we can live in a way that is, uh, that is a, a standard of living. I believe that there's a conversation that we could all have assessing our standard of living that would allow us to be generous with our money and bless others to fund the kingdom. I know that there's, there's many that have already put themselves on a trajectory to give millions away, to be those who would be 
at the end of their life be, be able to look back and say, I was able to sow into and push the kingdom forward with millions and maybe even billions of dollars. I see that there is, there is a, a call for that. Much like the Exodus 36 passage that I wrote, some had no skill of tapestry or metalwork or woodwork, but they had the stores of gold that they had the ability to give. And the house was provided for, each one doing their part to be able to provide for. David was one of these people. David funded the house of prayer in his day. He funded the, what we refer to as the tabernacle of David. Gave you a, a whole bunch of verses there. David was a person who grew up poor and was able to, by the end of his life, to have given away billions of dollars. Provide for and staff the house of prayer, both out of his own personal bank accounts, but also using the resources of the nation as the king. I want to jump forward here to part seven, prophetic clarity. One of the things that, that I think we are uh, moving forward in, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to see it, is I think that there has been, um, for probably the past few decades, a shift as we've seen uh, the prophetic and, and kind of a, a palette for the prophetic begin to increase, and it's a little bit more acceptable, and that's, I think, really good, but I think we have a, a long way to go. I'm looking forward to the day that we see that the, the gifts of the Spirit that are currently despised no longer despised, but become treasure, treasured and sought after, as 1 Corinthians 13, 14, 15 really begins to lay out, that there is not just a, a acceptance or a permiss, like permission to do the gifts, but that the church would be seeking after and, and searching after as, uh, as treasure, like Paul talks about, uh, to, to prophesy, to operate in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I, I think about this concept of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Knowing how Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit and how good it was that He said, I know that, that you love me and it's going to pain you that I leave, but it's better that the Holy Spirit comes to be your helper, to be the counselor, to be the one who's going to lead you into all truth, who's going to be the one to equip you, who's going to be the one to help you uh, begin to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit, but also one that has the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I, I look at the, the concept of the Holy Spirit, this one that Jesus was talking so highly of, part of the Godhead, and the gifts that the Holy Spirit has and that we would even despise them or, or not want them in, in our midst. I believe, though, that there's a time that we are, we're not just going to allow or permit the gifts, but that, that we're going to have prophetic clarity, that we're going, to have the, uh, we're going to have the gifts of the Holy Spirit in operation. I want to take a moment uh, leaving the broad uh, conversation about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but I want to focus on the gift of prophecy. Here in 1 Corinthians 14, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to man but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries, but he, who's, he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied, for he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with the tongue, unless indeed he interprets, that the church may receive edification. There is this premium that Paul is placing on the gift of prophecy. And I believe that there's several reasons for it, and I want to uh, take a stab at, at pulling some of, those, uh, some of those reasons why he's taking such an emphasis on it. We see that uh, prophecy often is... Uh, referred to as uh, parabolic in nature, meaning that there's parables, kind of po poetic in nature about it. Uh, we'll, we'll take just a moment on that, but I also want to talk about just the main and plain prophecy that we have in our Bible. In our Bible, we have prophecy that has already been laid out, the Word of God that can be trusted. Examples of those prophecies being fulfilled 
are, are many that I've been talking about. There is coming a day when Jesus is going to return. He's going to make earth His footstool. He's going to set His throne in Jerusalem. He's going to rule and reign. We know that because it's prophesied in the Bible. It's going to happen. It's coming. We see there, that there are prophecies that are laid out in the Bible that are main and plain that seem many times outlandish because we look at our current circumstance, we look at our current experience, and can't see the, the dots connect to that point. But we see that there are these promises that are in God's Word. We call those objective prophecy. There's nothing to, to argue about. The, these promises are laid out in the Word. But there's also, um, call, there's also room for subjective prophecies. Now, the difference between objective and subjective is, is just that. Um, there's those that are in the Bible and those that are, um, are perceived, those that are uh, perceived in a dream, in a vision, in an impression. Um, and all of those, uh, we have a really good measuring stick. We, we have the ability to take those and always measure them and test that prophecy up against the truth of the Word of God. If any prophecy that is subjective, that is an impression, that is a, something that someone is perceiving, does not line up with the Word of God, we can know that it is not true, that it is not something that we should take stock in. And so with those two things being, uh, being established, I want to take a moment looking at, um, at parables, which we see parables in objective prophecy as well as in subjective prophecy. Parables was kind of Jesus' thing. Parables was the way that Jesus talked, and, and if, you, if you read about it, you, you kind of see that it's honestly a little bit unfair, but just and true are His ways, and, and we'll look at an example of, of why that is. Jesus spoke many things in parables to take, to take a truth and make it more clear to those who are humble and hungry, but for those who were proud and spiritually satisfied, it made it more obscure and difficult for them to understand. This verse uh, that I, I want to read through is in Matthew 13. It says, His disciples came to Him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables, Jesus? And He answered to them, and He answered and said to them, Because it's been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not been given. Whoever has to Him will more will be given, and, whoever, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly I say to you, that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, and, hear, and did not see it, and hear what you hear, and did not hear it. We have available to us this invitation to, to take Jesus' parables, to take the prophecy in His Word and to lay hold of it. I believe that there is a, an, a, uh, a partnership in these, pro, in these prophetic promises that as the house of prayer that we can lay hold of and, and, and actually help these things come to pass. There's many promises that are in the Word of God that, that you can take hold of and pray into, partner with God. You can even take the big ones, the big obvious ones, like Jesus' return. In Revelation 22, 17, it says that the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. What that, what that means is that there's going to be a, a people who are looking in, in agreement with the Holy Spirit and saying, Lord Jesus, come. The good news is we don't have to wait until that whole global reality is doing. We can begin to say that now. We can begin to pray into that, Lord Jesus, come. We can pray into these big kingdom objectives. That's a very broad one that is a big, easy target for us to pray into. Lord Jesus, come. Set up your kingdom. Have your way. There are others that are more specific. I love the example when... Uh, when Daniel was in, in captivity, he looked to the prophecy in Jeremiah that there was coming a 70-year a, a period of captivity in Babylon, and he saw that the time was drawing near, so he gave himself to pray for it to come to pass. We can look at these events, we can look at these trends taking place even before our very eyes, and we can pray into them. We can partner with God in bringing them to pass. 
want to take a, a quick side note as, uh, as a house of prayer. Uh, many times we find that there is a, uh, a bit of a draw for pro- a prophetic people, which I love because prophetic and intercession go together. We have need of, prof- of the prophetic gifting, both in the, the, the written word of God, the prophetic, but also those subjective um, impressions and, and dreams and visions and, and those things that are perceived. We have need of those. Many times we have, in our 14-year history, we're actually in a moment right now that we receive prophetic, a prophetic heads up. Several dreams came through. We had some, set, we had some uh, people come through unrelated, say, hey, I feel like this thing's going to happen. Look out for it. And we posture ourselves in a certain way. And in some instances, we're able to avoid or lessen the impact of whatever that is, for better or for worse. We have need of the, of the prophetic gifting. And, and again, I would say, uh, the prophetic gifting, those that, that are uh, prophetic people, those who are gifted in that, um, in that specific way, we have need of that. Uh, the house is deficient without that gifting. And again, to, to take the, the, the wording of just permit, just allow the, 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 you know, the gift of prophecy, we want to have a, a house that is operating in prophetic clarity. And I believe that as we continue in our calling, continue in the house of prayer, that, that the Lord has that for us. The whole book of Psalms, as you read through them, you see some of the most progressive prophetic clarity in their, in their day as they begin to, to see the, the, uh, the way that God interacts with people in a way that was not yet described in anywhere else in the Word of God before that. But as they began to behold the Lord, as they began to spend time in His house, they began to receive more clarity. And I believe that's what we have in store for us. So as a conclusion, I want to, to remind us the vision and the values. We have a vision to, to have night and day prayer to, and uh, whoever the worship leader can come up. We have the vision to, to be the house of prayer that God has called us to be, to have daily prayer until He returns. But I believe if we give some, some energy, some focus to these to these four areas that, that we could better uh, operate in the, in the calling that, that, we're, uh, that we've been giving, given, that, that we would be a people of corporate intercession, that we would be those who have the Sermon on the Mount as a lifestyle and as a, as a goal of what we're working toward, to have extravagant generosity and, and living lifestyles that are put in a way that allows us to be generous. And then lastly, to be a people with prophetic clarity. I believe that we will be a people that persevere in prayer by His grace and that we will patiently endure until the day of our blessed hope. I want to pray and then give us an opportunity to respond. Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at theprayerroomdfw.com.